about. You don't know what you're talking about. Chris, you don't know what you're talking about, idiot. Truth isn't truth. The president of the United States says, I didn't. No, no, no. This is going to become a bad thing. Don't do this to me. Let's have trial by combat. Oh, no, no. I told the president of the Ukraine that we're going to fight corruption. Nice, nice, nice. Poor little Hillary. I don't think most Americans know that our ballots get calculated, many of them outside the United States. They didn't bother to interview a single witness. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa podcast. Last week was chock full of authoritarian antics from our friends in the GOP, who seem absolutely hell-bent on nullifying the will of the people in order for them to maintain power in a system that no longer values their politics or their message. A combination of shifting demographics where older, white, conservative voters are no longer the dominant constituency has Republicans running scared. If they can't open their tent, they're doomed to irrelevance. Unless they change the voting laws to suppress the ability for black and brown people to vote. False fraud claims are now fueling GOP efforts to roll back to restrict voter access. 33 state legislatures have already introduced 165 bills to restrict voting access just since last month. Florida restricting vote by mail after nearly 5 million Floridians voted that way last year. In Pennsylvania, Republicans are trying to roll back mail-in voting expansions they passed just two years ago. In New Hampshire, they're trying to require voter ID for absentee ballots while banning the use of student IDs. In Arizona, one proposal would even allow the legislature to override the Secretary of State's certification of the electoral votes. If they're not happy with the result, they can just change it. Then they can just continue on as they pretend that Trump is still president and spout their imbecilic nonsense on Fox News. Ever wonder why people on both sides are embracing conspiracy theories? But we'll get back to these issues. They're incredibly important. But we need to talk about Rudy and his idiot son. If American politics is ruled by dynasty from the Kennedys to the Bushes, the Clintons, the Cheneys, and beyond, Donald Trump has made it clear that this is the new world where expertise is a handicap and intelligence a disease. His offspring of near duels are an ugly dynastic mutation of the worst sort. Leaders and fighters for freedom and liberty and the American dream. The best is yet to come. But that doesn't even begin to describe the Giuliani's. Andrew is, let's say, off the bat, extremely fucking stupid, yet possessing the kind of overconfidence and self-esteem that only the very privileged male heir of Rudy could fucking possess. I want a hamburger, no a cheeseburger. I want a hot dog, I want a milkshake, I want potatoes. You'll chips. get nothing and like it. Somehow, this turd seems himself as the face of American conservatism, entirely deserving of being the next governor of New York. Andrew Giuliani, the son of the former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, wants to be the next governor of New York. And the truth is, Martha, from an experience perspective, I may be 35 years old, but you got to remember, I spent 32 years, parts of 32 years, in politics and in government. Um, I'm the only uh, announced candidate that actually has spent parts of five decades in politics. So I may look okay. young, but I certainly feel a lot yeah. older. <laughs> Double turns. Spalding. Blah, blah, blah. No, 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 you don't. 
Your father's going to prison for a long time and you need to shut the fuck up before convincing some clan of hillbillies that you're actually deserving of their vote. I can't believe I'm answering something from Michael Cohen. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! <laughs> I'm gonna give my dad mayor! Now for the week in Rudy. Truth isn't truth. America's former mayor turned TV freak show and farting Trump lackey has been suspended from practicing law in New York State due to his demonstrably false and misleading statements about the 2020 election results. A New York court says Rudy Giuliani repeatedly lied. And because of that, he can no longer practice law. The New York Supreme Court Appellate Division's Grievance Committee filed a summary of disciplinary proceedings on Thursday outlining multiple uncontroverted instances of professional misconduct. We conclude that there is uncontroverted evidence that respondent communicated demonstrably false and misleading statements to the courts lawmakers, and the public at large in his capacity as lawyer for former President Donald J. Trump and the Trump campaign in connection with Trump's failed effort at re-election in 2020, the five-member attorney grievance committee said in its filing. Those are the ballots that were stuck in the machine eight times, nine times, ten times. I don't know what the vote in Michigan is. Our vote is owned by two Venezuelans who were allies of Chavez now, if they ran such a clean election, why wouldn't they make all the machines available immediately? These false statements were made to improperly bolster respondents' narrative that due to widespread voter fraud, victory in the 2020 United States presidential election was stolen from his client. We conclude that respondents' conduct immediately threatens the public interest and warrants interim suspension from the practice of law, pending further proceedings before the Attorney Grievance Committee. And what they've found is that there is uncontroverted evidence that Rudy Giuliani made false and misleading statements to courts, to legislative bodies, to, to the American people that made it difficult for people to have confidence in the outcome of the election. And it's important that those allegations are uncontroverted. That means that they take them as true, that Giuliani has done nothing to disprove them, although he had the opportunity to, because the fact that they are so blatantly true, combined with the fact that Giuliani continues to pose danger to the community, is what warranted the action that they took today. In its 33-page ruling, the Grievance Committee outlines and then systematically debunks a long list of statements Giuliani made during his months-long crusade to overturn Joe Biden's victory. For example, Giuliani claimed in several interviews and state legislative hearings that more absentee ballots came in during the election in Pennsylvania than were sent out before the election. A statement that the committee easily proved was fucking simply untrue. These judges take action without giving me a hearing. They listen to the false allegations that are made by the Democrats and disregard the other side of it. Same thing they did to President Trump. They're basing it on the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC. In response, Giuliani told the committee that an unidentified member of his team had inadvertently taken misleading information from Pennsylvania's website. 
In other examples, Giuliani repeatedly claimed that dead people were voting in Georgia, at times quantifying it as 800, 6,000, or 10,515 dead people. In truth, officials were investigating two potential cases of votes being cast in the name of dead people. In Pennsylvania, he put the number at 8,021 dead people and then 30,000 dead people. Everything I said about this case comes from a witness, sometimes two or three witnesses. I have a woman who was willing to testify that she was taught how to cheat by the Democrat Party in Detroit. Before you can say I was acting improperly, you've got to listen to these witnesses. Public records unequivocally show that respondent's statement is false, the committee said. Now Giuliani argued during disciplinary proceedings that he didn't know the statements were false, but he failed to provide a scintilla of evidence to support his claim, the filing said. In one election-related lawsuit in Pennsylvania, about two voters who had their mail-in ballots rejected, Giuliani repeatedly told the judge that his client was pursuing a fraud claim, when indisputably it was not, the committee said. The mischaracterization of the case was not simply a passing mistake, the committee found. Fraud was the crown of his personal argument before the court that day, it said. Altogether, the misconduct posed an immediate threat to the public interest, the committee finally concluded. I made all those statements, correct? Mm -hmm. Not a single one of them led to a protest, a riot, an incident, uh, and anything. So obviously those statements do not have the impact of being, of creating danger. These statements were made in, this is all after January 6th. If these statements are so darn dangerous, how come there hasn't been a protest, a riot? Uh, the kind of thing we had last, last summer when the city was blowing up and Democrats were doing nothing. While Giuliani claimed to the committee that he believed most of his statements to be true at the time, he also offered an overarching First Amendment defense. But the committee said it rejected that argument. Now, Giuliani knowingly misrepresented the facts and made false statements on behalf of his clients, two violations not protected by the First Amendment, it said. The disciplinary probe was initiated in January when State Senate Judiciary Committee Chair Brad Hullman urged the Grievance Committee to investigate Giuliani's role in the Capitol riot. Last Thursday, Hullman said he was happy the committee agreed with his complaint. There can be no room in the profession for those who seek to undermine and undo the rule of law as Rudy Giuliani has so flagrantly done, he said. The man's a menace. While this suspension can be appealed by Giuliani, it's unlikely he'll be able to change anyone's mind. Rudy has become poison amongst his fellow lawyers for abusing the courts in the manner that he did and flushing so much fucking bullshit through the system to create a sense of chaos. Most people in his circle who aren't lobotomized Trump-loving zombies find Rudy morally repugnant and his actions unconscionable. Next up will be complete and total disbarment, just like Trump's other legal eagle, the Prince of Darkness, Roy Cohn. His lies are petty and they're large and they're big. And as a result, 75% of Republicans think the election was stolen because of his lies. So this this had an effect. And so when they say in New York, we're going to suspend you, 
they're suspending him and, and they might normally give you a chance to rebut it. But what he said was so dangerous and so terrible that they invoke procedures they have and he gets to challenge them. And at the end of the day, there's a good chance he'll be disbarred. So I'd like to think that uh, uh, this is the, the spring of the reckoning. The New York Bar Association is investigating Giuliani after receiving hundreds of complaints about his role in the Capitol riot. In a statement in January, the New York State Bar Association blamed the mob on Trump's repeated false claims about the results of the 2020 election, but notes that the president did not act alone. Hours before the angry mob stormed the Capitol walls, Trump's personal attorney, Rudolph fucking Giuliani, addressed a crowd of thousands at the White House, reiterating baseless claims of widespread election fraud in the presidential election and the Georgia U.S. Senate runoffs. Now here's Andrew ranting at the camera like a professional wrestling commentator. I am infuriated by all this and any American that believes in an independent justice system, this is going after one of President Trump's closest allies. That's exactly what this is. And any American that doesn't believe that, they are just biased. This uh, This is unacceptable and I stand by my father. He did everything ultimately by the book and the fact that there would be this politicization in our Justice Department is disgusting. It is a cancer that needs to be cut out and it needs to be cut out right now. But that's not all. Remember that old wax face had his apartment raided by the FBI in late April. Things may have gone quiet, but that's only because the forensic team is combing through every nano inch of metadata related to the shenanigans in the Ukraine, attempts to overturn the election, Russian influence peddling, and a bunch of other shit we don't even know about. But at this point, nothing could shock me about Rudy. Needless to say, everything that happens to Rudy is well fucking deserved. How can they say I lied if I've had a hearing? I've been a lawyer for 50 years. I've never had a complaint. Somebody's got to fix this uh, double standard justice system, which is not America anymore. I, I mean, I might as well be in Iran or East Germany. But if they think I'm going to violate the law after having almost been killed by the mafia, the FARC, the Islamic terrorists, they're out of their minds. What do you do now, having lost your life? I fight back. That's what I do. What they did should be a problem for them. They should be being investigated. That's not American. That's what they do in dictatorships. The man tried to overturn our democratic system and did it with tremendous zeal, willing to go farther than just about anyone. He is a profoundly dangerous man with authoritarian impulses, willing to be the hatchet man if the price is right. He belongs behind bars. That said, he is and always will be incredibly entertaining. I will, I will ask that he be, he be disciplined for that. First of all, the answer that I gave you is they didn't bother to interview a single witness, just like you. Part of his charm was his ability to fuck up on a colossal level to the point that they coined a term for it. It's called a Rudy Special. We all know what that means, from Four Seasons Total Landscaping to his many disastrous TV appearances to the aforementioned flatulence and hair dye. The man is a walking fucking freak show and creature of old New York looking for a home. He'll have to settle for a prison cell instead. Stop your messing around.
And now for the main event. Rudy may be good for a laugh, but lest we forget, his lies provided the foundation for today's voter suppression laws that have been pushed through state houses with troubling speed as the GOP seeks to rig the system and preserve its authoritarian hold. The main remedy for such anti-democratic behavior was to be the sprawling voter rights bill that was filibustered in the Senate last week by 50 Republican senators. The Biden administration's only remedy, for the time least being, appears to be the courts and Merrick Garland's Department of Justice. On Friday, they sued Georgia over a sweeping voting law passed by the state's Republican-led legislature, opening up the first major challenge by the Biden administration to combat state-level ballot restrictions enacted since the 2020 election. The rights of all eligible citizens to vote are the central pillars of our democracy, Mr. Garland said in a news conference at the Justice Department. They are the rights from which all other rights ultimately flow. The complaint accuses the Georgia law of effectively discriminating against black voters and seeks to show that state lawmakers intended to do so. It says that several of the law's provisions were passed with a discriminatory purpose, Kristen Clark, the head of the department's Civil Rights Division, said at the news conference. The lawsuit is among the most aggressive efforts to expand and preserve voter protections since the Supreme Court in 2013 overturned a key provision of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that it allowed the Justice Department to stop states from passing laws viewed as a facilitating voter discrimination. And it comes days after congressional Republicans blocked the most ambitious federal voting rights legislation in a generation, dealing a blow to Democrats' efforts to preserve voting rights. President Biden and Democratic leaders pledged to continue working to steer federal voting rights legislation into law and to escalate pressure on states and Republicans, with Mr. Biden planning speeches in key states warning against a threat to the democratic process that he has compared to Jim Crow. In addition, the complaint clearly illustrates how the Biden administration intends to throw everything it has at this fight by invoking the remaining tools the Justice Department has to aggressively fight state actions that it sees as potentially disenfranchising minority voters. These issues are the central importance to mea culpa and goes to the heart of why we do what we do. This show is about finding the truth and these voter suppression bills were born out of Trump's big lie. Unfortunately, it's now gone well past that notion and has sunk into the very fabric of the GOP where they have pushed bills to suppress minority votes and worse, in an attempt to rig every fucking election for the foreseeable future. My next guest has joined us as the absolute perfect moment to dissect these issues and discuss what happens next. Ari Berman is quite possibly the foremost expert on voter suppression working today. A senior reporter for Mother Jones, Berman has broken some of the most important and frightening stories related to voter suppression. He is the author of the best-selling Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America, and a recipient of the prestigious Sidney Hillman Foundation Award in journalism for his reporting on the dark money behind the GOP's voter suppression efforts. 
In addition, he can be seen regularly on MSNBC and most recently heard on Ezra Klein's New York Times podcast. We welcome Berman to Mayor Culpa just days after the stinging defeat of the Democrats' voter rights bill and on the very day Merrick Garland announced the DOJ's intention to sue the state of Georgia. Get ready to have your mind blown on where the GOP intends to take their authoritarian desires. It doesn't just end with simple legislation. So let's listen now to that conversation. So Ari... This morning on Mother Jones, you broke the story that the Department of Justice is suing the state of Georgia over their voter suppression law. Is this the opening salvo from the Biden administration on what will become a national fight against what appears to be a coordinated GOP effort to suppress voters on a national level? And finally, how does a case like this even work? I mean, how long could it take for there to be some kind of actionable justice? Because one thing we know is that justice goes slow. Yeah, uh, Michael, thank you for having me. Uh, and those are really good questions. Uh, I do believe it's going to be the beginning of a strategy uh, by the Justice Department to challenge restrictive voting laws. I think it makes sense they started with Georgia. That's one of the most restrictive laws, also one of the most high-profile states that has enacted these laws. They also had a long time to scrutinize it because the law passed in March. So they've had months now to go over the most restrictive parts of it. And now that they have their team in place, uh, they were ready to, to file this lawsuit. They also filed it on the eighth anniversary of the Supreme Court decision gutting the Voting Rights Act. So there was some symbolism there in terms of the timing as well. The way it's going to work, though, is it's going to take a while. It goes to the district court, and then from there it goes to the appeals court, and then it goes to the Supreme Court. And what used to happen is that states with a history of discrimination, like Georgia, they used to have to approve their voting changes with the federal government. That's no longer the case since the Supreme Court weakened the Voting Rights Act in 2013. So now what has to happen is that law can only be challenged after the fact through a lengthy process I just saw that it was assigned to a Trump appointee. So Donald Trump made 234 appointments to the federal courts. I don't think most of these judges are going to be very sympathetic to these lawsuits filed by the Justice Department. So it's going to be an uphill battle to strike this law down. Well, I'm not really sure about that because he also appointed, uh, obviously, individuals into the Supreme Court. And they didn't seem to side with him when the district attorney here in New York tried to and successfully obtained his tax returns. You know, That's a kind of Donald Trump notion that if I gave you this lifetime appointment and I'm going to be very honest with you, I don't I don't agree with it. I don't believe that federal court judges should have lifetime appointment. In fact, I don't believe anyone should have a fucking lifetime appointment because to me, it sounds just like a monarch, right? Or a dictator. Other than that, why should a Supreme Court judge, give him 25 years, give him 30 years, but this lifetime appointment shit just doesn't make any sense to me. But going back to Donald, this is a Donald Trump ideology that if I put you in that position, you owe me. And so far, so many of them have turned around and said, well, you know what? Thank you for the position, but we don't owe you shit, my friend. All right. We have sure. to do what, what, what's right and what justice dictates. I mean, we also have an oath that we took to the law. And if the law is, you know, you can't suppress somebody's voting rights, well, then you can't suppress somebody's voting rights. That's true. Um, but I think there's different issues here. 
I don't think it's fealty towards Trump. I think if you look, for example, John Roberts was appointed by George W. Bush, and he gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013 before Trump was even talking about running for president. I mean, so the point is, these judges that were appointed, they have their own ideology irrespective of Trump. And I think their ideology largely matches up with the broader ideology of the Republican Party. Now, I don't know what these judges are going to do in an individual case. Maybe they'll look at the Georgia law and they'll strike it down. I'm just saying the pattern of the Supreme Court before Trump in terms of the Republican appointees was not to be very sympathetic to things like the Voting Rights Act. And so I don't think it's necessarily about Trump. It's the fact that he appointed judges that were signed off on by the Federalist Society, signed off by the conservative movement. And by and large, those judges, with some exceptions, share an ideology. Were they willing to overturn the election? No, they're not willing to go that far. They're not willing to just say Republicans can flat out steal an election. But are they okay with voter ID laws or cutting back on early voting or making it more difficult to register vote? Broadly speaking, the answer has been yes. And so that's that predates Trump. And I think that will happen you know, whenever Trump disappears from the political scene, they will still have that kind of ideology. Well, and believe me, he's going to be disappearing from the scene. My prediction is in a very short period of time. And I mean, like within 30 days. Uh, that's really what I believe is going to happen. I think very soon you're going to start to see the low-hanging fruit indictments, whether it's Matt Calamari, whether it's Alan Weisselberg, whether it's any of their kids. I believe that that's what you're going to start to see very soon. But I wanted just to expand upon my first question to you. How many elections do you think will pass before something is decided? Because, again, how I in, in my question I said to you that uh, justice— Unless you're Michael Cohen, that happens in 48 hours. Justice is a very long-winded process. How many election cycles? Because that, to me, is where the danger lies, not in the fact that the judges— and yeah, you are right, they did all come from the Federalist Society. I was there in his office when he received the list of judges. He doesn't know any of them. He just checked off the fucking boxes because that's Trump. You know, make him look smart, do it for him, and he's just going to say, oh, yeah, the guy's a great, the guy's a great judge. He's well-respected. He doesn't know anything about the guy. Zero. So how long do you think that something like this could take? And how many election cycles do you think will pass? Well, it it could take years. I mean, what the Justice Department is going to seek is a preliminary injunction before the 2022 election, because they're going to say that there's direct harm on the voters here by all of these changes. They're going to say banning groups from handing out food and water, cutting the number of mail ballot drop boxes, giving people less time to vote by mail, banning election officials from sending out mail ballot request forms, all of those things that the Georgia law does, they're going to say that harms voters in the next election. So we need a decision before the next election. But these cases go very slowly. I mean, you have trials, uh, you have expert witnesses, the other side is going to try to slow everything down. So I mean, it could be one or two election cycles before this stuff is fully litigated, before it reaches the Supreme Court. I mean, the Supreme Court heard a law from Arizona recently. They're going to make a decision any day now. And that case has been working its way through the courts for years. And so it's possible the courts will block this law before 2022, but it's also possible this thing is going to play out for one or two election cycles before it's ultimately decided. It might not be decided till sometime 
before 2024. 2024 is not even a possibility the way I see it. Uh, I, you know, they're going to all start with their motion practice. This one's not going to be able to make it to the hearing. It's going to get adjourned again. I mean, that's just the game that they play. I mean, that's, that's the game that we used to play at the Trump organization. It was stall, 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 right? Cost the other side as much money as you possibly can. And then just Keep costing them more money. So either they walk away or they just settle up. Uh, I mean, that that was just the game. But I do want to ask you, Ari, critics of these laws, including President Biden, referred to them as 21st century Jim Crow. Now, a charge that Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia has vehemently rejected. Now, can you explain to my listeners what the similarities are between today's laws and what was in place during the dark days of Jim Crow? Because I feel like people use that as a pejorative label without fully understanding the history of Jim of the Jim Crow laws. Yeah, that's true. Um, I wrote a really long story for Mother Jones about this that tried to give that's a lot more. That's why I'm asking you the Thank question, you. I, I, fig- I figured as much. You know, we do, unlike the Trump organization and Donald and his administration, we actually do our homework here <laughs> on Maya Culp. I appreciate that. I appreciate that, Michael. So I wanted to give some context because you're right. People throw it around on both sides. The left will say things are Jim Crow and the right will say there's nothing Jim Crow. And so my thing was to look, what are the similarities? So first you have to look at the historical pattern. The historical pattern that happened after the end of the Civil War was black men got the right to vote in all of these Southern states where they had previously been enslaved. They voted, they held office. We had multiracial government in the South for the first time. After that, there were attempts at violence, fraud, intimidation to try to throw out their votes. That succeeded for some period of time, but it was really, really difficult uh, to do that every single election. So then they rewrote their constitutions, places like Mississippi, to just disenfranchise black voters through things like literacy tests, poll taxes, property requirements, things like that. What I'm saying uh, in my piece is that the pattern is similar if you look at 2020, because in 2020, we had higher turnout among all demographic groups, uh, particularly younger voters of communities of color. They turned out at a higher rate. That was followed by an attempt to try to overturn an election, to try to falsely allege voter fraud, to throw out votes. When that didn't succeed, they decided to change the laws in the states to achieve the same outcome. Now, I'm not saying that restricting the number of drop boxes is the same as a literacy test or a poll tax during Jim Crow. That's why they call it Jim Crow in the 21st century, because it's different. But the point is, new people turn out to vote. You try to overturn the election. That doesn't work. So you try to disenfranchise people through legal means because the illegal means fail. And if you look at the Georgia law, it has 16 different provisions that make it harder for voters in places like Atlanta to be able to vote. And so they looked at the voting methods that led Georgia to go blue, that led it to elect a black senator and a Jewish senator. And they said, let's cut back on those voting methods. And that's why it's Jim Crow in the 21st century. It's not a literacy test. It's not a poll tax. It's not a separate and unequal society. It's when new people vote and power shifts, let's try to take away the methods they used to shift power. And that's where the similarities come in. I mean, most people can probably relate to the movie. I'm a movie guy, right? You may remember the movie Gangs of New York with Daniel Day-Lewis, yeah. right? Where with Tammany Hall, they were holding slapjacks, right? And, you know, who are you voting for, right? And if you voted for, you're going to vote for the wrong guy and you open your mouth stupidly and told them, 
you know, you would get a slapjack to the back of your head, knock you out, and then you would, of course, never have the chance to get to the ballot box. And so they were able to determine who they wanted. I mean, that's sort of the concept of the Jim Crow laws yeah. that were that were happening. And I don't understand how it's possible that the attorney general doesn't put an end to all this. My understanding from childhood and from history class, it's one person, one vote. Why are you interfering with my right to vote? I mean, not too long ago, they even gave back inmates, right, felons like myself, the right to vote. So you're going to tell me that somebody is going to have a difficult time because they're handing out water? Or they're going to hand out a sandwich somewhere, you know, with these long ass lines because technology, which is supposed to help to speed things up, actually slows things down. Right. I, I don't get it, but there has to be a better system. And one of these days, my hope is that somebody comes up with it because this is just absolutely ridiculous. Well, the, the problem is, is that states have a lot of power to run their own elections. And sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing. Presidents can't just do whatever they want. Trump learned that in 2020. He just wanted the states to just throw out all the votes for Joe Biden. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. There's a process here in terms of how voting works. And so presidents don't have an unbelievable amount of unilateral authority to change voting laws. And I think that sometimes that's a good thing. Like when someone like Trump wants to throw out votes, sometimes it's a bad thing. Like when Joe Biden wants to do more. And it's very, very difficult to stop these laws in the states. Uh, and also, Congress isn't doing anything to pass federal legislation to stop these measures. And that's really what happened. That's really what ended Jim Crow. It was the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The Justice Department had filed dozens and dozens of lawsuits before 1965 to try to get rid of things like poll taxes and literacy tests. And it was very unsuccessful because, as you mentioned earlier, it was very slow. It took years and years and years. And they would finally win, and then the state just wouldn't follow it, or they would just pass another literacy test or another poll tax, and then you'd have to begin the litigation all over again. And so really it was that federal legislation to enforce voting rights that was so effective in 1965, and that's a lot of what's missing today. There's only so much a president can do. There's only so much a Justice Department can do. Congress has the authority to enforce federal election laws, and states have the authority to enforce their own laws, and that's a check on federal power that sometimes is good, but in this case has been largely bad. But so long as it doesn't interfere with your federal rights. And that's the point I was trying to make. And when I say the attorney general, the attorney general should be out there and he should be creating the litigation against the states for violating your federal rights uh, to vote. That's just my that's just my opinion, because some of these um, these changes, some of these acts that they're trying to pass in many of these states, they're just they're reprehensible, to say the least. They are 100% targeted at minorities. They're 100% target, targeted at people of color. And like I said, it's disgraceful because even the way that they're gerrymandering now, I mean, you start seeing some of the, some of the areas that have been gerrymandered, it looks like a figure eight. And the two pockets that have the circles, that's a whole totally different district than everything that's surrounding them. Why? Because, again, they want to ensure that the state remains, or I should say that that member of um, whatever office that they're running for, it stays red. And this is just, again, this... This is just typical Donald Trump shit that people have picked up and that they're running with. That's just my opinion onto it. 
Hi folks, Michael Cohen here, and we've got an amazing sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics, so if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, check out last Thursday's episode with Cornell's Robert H. Frank, who talks about the oft-downplayed role of luck in success and how we can maximize its effects. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show, like the January 12th episode with Matthew McConaughey. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode on how to deal with corrupt and crooked bosses, addiction, brain chemistry, and so much more. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guest. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether it's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity, or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show, and we think you will as well. So search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. But I'll also go on to say this, Ari. You recently won a major investigative journalism award for breaking the story on how this voter suppression legislation is being funded on a national level by the dark money group Heritage Action in a leaked video. Now, if you would, can you explain to my listeners just who they are and how they connect to the GOP? And then finally, what was it um, that was said on the tape that was so incendiary? Well, the Heritage Action is the sister organization of the Heritage Foundation, which is pretty much the biggest right-wing think tank in Washington. It took a lot of credit for policies that were enacted under presidents like Reagan uh, and Trump. And what they do is they are spending $24 million in eight battleground states to make it harder to vote and also to try to block federal legislation, the For the People Act, that would stop these efforts. And what they said in this leaked video was that they were writing what they called model legislation for GOP state legislatures to make it harder to vote. They said they wrote 19 provisions of the Texas bill, eight provisions of the Georgia law, three provisions of the Iowa law. And the way these bills have been portrayed in the states by their Republican sponsors is, oh, we're just responding to the concerns of our constituents. We're just trying to ensure election integrity. When in fact, this video showed it was a dark money group in Washington raising millions of dollars from secret donors that were essentially exporting a voter suppression agenda to the states. And instead of this being this authentic grassroots thing, it was essentially coming from the top down in DC. And the executive director of this group, someone by the name of Jessica Anderson, she had this quote where she said, we either write the bills for the state legislatures or we give them the legislation through what she called a sentinel, which is their representative. So it has a grassroots from the bottom up type of vibe. Well, if you're actually grassroots and bottom up, you don't have to say that it has a grassroots and bottom up vibe because that's obvious. The other thing she said that was so striking is she talked about passing these laws in Iowa. And she said, we did it quickly and we did it quietly. Nobody even knew about it. We looked at our team and we said, how could it be this easy? So, I mean, they were just bragging. They were just gleefully bragging 
about how easy it was to make it harder to vote. And I think when this when we published the video, a lot of people got really pissed off about it because they're like, number one, this is clearly a secret strategy to pass all these laws. But number two, how could you take such glee in undermining a fundamental right for Americans? And so it just kind of illustrated the problem of Washington, which is have this toxic mixture, mixture of money and suppression going hand in hand. Well, then how do we find out with or who the big donors are? Um, I mean, are they a 501c3? Is it private? There, is there any recording of any of these big donors? No, that's the, that's the hard thing. It's really, really difficult to find out uh, who their donors are. They raised $11 million. Heritage Action raised $11 million in their last inner report, disclosed almost none of it. The Heritage Foundation released, I think they raised $123 million and released almost all of it. We knew they were talking to their donors, but we don't actually know who their donors are. The leaked video only shows them on stage. It doesn't show who's in the crowd talking. Some of the stuff has been reported that they've raised money from people like Charles and David Koch, you know, the Koch brothers, other people like that. But no, and that's the problem because of the Citizens United decision saying that you don't have to disclose your donors. We just don't know. And to me, that's one of the biggest problems in American politics right now. And it's kind of nuts to me. Michael, that people are just okay with that. They're like, they're just okay with people being able to buy elections and not even knowing who they are. I mean, to me, that that level of disclosure should just be a basic thing that is done. And it's not done. And we don't really have any kind of way to uncover it um, other than they self-disclose or uh, somehow or another, you find out who attends these meetings, other things like that. But the video we had shed a lot of light on what they were doing, but there were still a lot of questions that were we were unable to answer. Yeah, Ari, I'm not so sure that people don't care about who the big money is. I just think people are frustrated because if you as a journalist can't find out who these individuals are, well, what's the likelihood that somebody like me, just an average Joe, is going, is going to be able to, okay, maybe I'll find out through some ridiculous conversation that maybe I overheard um, the name of somebody, and I can't verify its accuracy, but I think people are more frustrated, and so they move on to a topic that they can actually have some say in, that they can have some participation you know, in. That's, that's what I think. I, D.C. has become so dirty, especially with the dark money. And look, the Cokes, I've met the Cokes, and I have to say, one-on-one, I have no issue with any of them. Then again, I'm not aware that they are or they're not giving money to this heritage action or the Heritage Foundation. What I will tell you is that I find all of these big groups to be very dangerous. I think they're dangerous for American democracy. I think that they're very dangerous to how legislation gets passed. I mean, you know, just as a reference, you know, you take a look at what's happened, even, for example, with Uber. Or, you know, any of these ride sharing apps, they came in with real big money, Wall Street type money, and they got the best lobbyists. They started passing legislation that absolutely destroyed industries in whether it's New York, whether it was Chicago, whether it was Philadelphia, Boston, all the states. They came and they destroyed it for their own profit. And what now, for example, New York is looking at. The taxi industry used to be the second largest provider of funds to the city's coffers, only second to Parking Violation Bureau. That's now out of business. 
There's no more money coming in. And so there's hundreds of millions of dollars. And I'm not talking about 100, I'm talking about like hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that the city is now going to be missing, that they used to line item. And what are you going to do? Continue to tax everybody that's here? Well, here's the problem. All the smart money, all the rich money, all the billionaires, they already left for states like Florida because they don't want to pay the city and the state tax anymore. So you're going to end up coming into financial crisis. Why? Because of these big groups. And then let's just take a fast look at like what happened with the NRA. You go yeah. after the head person and you start finding the shit on them. And that's mm-hmm. how you take, that's how you have to go after these. Yeah. If in fact yeah. the Cokes are involved in this and that they're out there trying to promote some of these racist and suppressionary laws, well, let's put an end to them. And I don't care how much money that they are. The richest guy in, the, in, the, in this country, whether it's Bezos or uh, whether it's Elon Musk, because they, you know, they trade every other day who's the richest guy, you still can't fight the U.S. government. U.S. government has all the resources, and they, and they have more money than you. And they can destroy anybody that they want. Well, let's fucking get to it. If that's the case, you want to suppress people's voting rights? You want to suppress their constitutional rights? Let's put an end to it. That's what I would be doing. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think a lot of people feel that way. Um, but, you know, they're, they're just hampered by parts of the law. I mean, it's, it's really hard when the Supreme Court says you don't have to disclose your donors. It makes it really, really hard to reverse that. Now, we could, Congress could pass a law reversing what the Supreme Court did, potentially. We could have a different kind of Supreme Court that could eventually reverse that kind of thing. But it's really, really difficult. But I, I agree, if people knew more about it, I think they would be frustrated by it. Uh, and I think just the combination of dark money and voter suppression, to me, is really disturbing because it, it's kind of a double whammy. I mean, you have secret money that is then funding efforts to make it harder to vote kind of for the same purposes to try to concentrate power, consolidate power in fewer and fewer and fewer hands. And that's why I think they're connected. If you look at the legislation that was blocked in Congress recently, the For the People Act, it dealt with both dark money to have more disclosure of dark money donors and voter suppression because it realized these two things are connected, that you have to look at American democracy holistically. And usually the way that democracy is undermined, these things go together, that there's not just one way it happens, there's these interconnected way it happens. And one way it's interconnected is the relationship between dark secret money and efforts to make it harder to vote. Right. But what also goes together is not just voter suppression, but vote suppression. Because, you know, look, let me ask you, let me ask you a question this way. The GOP is doing absolutely everything in its power to nullify the will of the people through these voter suppression acts. That I believe you and I are both in full agreement. But they are in essence trying to rig the game for themselves in future elections. Because to me, that's obvious. Now, my question, though, is what happens if that in and of itself is not even enough for them? Do they have plans that go further where they can actually throw out the results of a popular election or just simply refuse its certification? Because basically what I'm asking you is, is there a plan where if there's a Trump-like situation in the future that they can actually put this person in office if they so choose? Yeah, that's their fallback plan. That's their ultimate end goal. All of these efforts to make it harder to vote don't work. They're just going to try 
to throw out votes altogether. That's their fallback plan. That's their ultimate level of voter suppression. And if you look at a state like Georgia, what they did is, remember the Georgia Secretary of State stood up to Donald Trump when Trump asked him to find 11,780 votes. The Secretary of State said, no, I'm not going to do that. So what did the Georgia legislature do? They removed the Secretary of State from being the chair and the voting member of the state election board, which oversees voting laws in the states. So now the legislature has authority over the election board instead of the popularly elected Secretary of State then the state election board can take over up to four county election boards. So the state election board could take over the election board in Fulton County, Atlanta, the most democratic area of the state, and say it's underperforming, so we're going to take that over. Then they're also allowing groups to challenge unlimited numbers of voters in terms of their voter eligibility. So if it's a close election, they're going to say all these people weren't qualified to vote. And then they're going to say, well, maybe we don't have to certify the election if a Democrat wins. Uh, And so they've changed authority on the local level. They've changed authority on the state level. And then the idea is that could be enough in a state election. But for a federal election, what will happen is legislatures may decide to appoint their own electors in the Electoral College. That was something that Trump wanted them to do in 2020, to just overturn the will of the voters. And Republican-controlled legislatures were unwilling to do that in places like Michigan and in Georgia. But they could try to do that in 2024. And there was just a poll that came out this week that said that 46% of Republicans believe it's okay for state legislatures to overturn the will of the voters, which is just crazy. I mean, you have basically a majority of Republicans that are saying we're okay with overturning the results of an election. I mean, that is a dramatic escalation of democratic norms. I don't know what the number would have been before Trump, but it wasn't even on the table. Like we weren't discussing this in 2008 or in 2004. I mean, it came up a little bit in Bush v. Gore, but that was within 537 votes. We've never said if there's an election where everything's really clear, where it's obvious that we're just going to flagrantly decide that we're not going to follow the will of the voters. And so that that's a really a dangerous escalation in terms of democratic norms. And then you look at some of the, the bills that have passed or proposed bills. In Texas, they actually had language in the bill that would have made it easier for candidates to petition judges to overturn an election. I mean, that was literally in the bill itself. And so judges would have more authority to throw out votes, but also the standard of proof you need to throw out votes was lowered as well from clearing convincing evidence to a preponderance of evidence. And instead of having to show how individual voters voted, if it was fraudulent votes, you just had to say, well, the number of fraudulent votes is larger than the margin of victory, which of course is exactly what Trump said in Georgia and all these other states. That's why he was asking Brad Raffensperger in Georgia to find 11,780 votes. He didn't just come up with that number randomly. That was Joe Biden's margin of victory. And so to me, that's the thing I'm most worried about here, because I think at the end of the day, you can potentially out-organize voter suppression efforts. You can get around them by telling people what the laws are, having really active people on the ground. But throwing out votes altogether, if your vote is thrown out, that is the ultimate act of voter suppression. And that's, at the end of the day, the tactic that I think is most worrisome in terms of what they're trying to do. Agreed. And my feeling is the reason for that is because so far, none of these individuals are seeing any consequences for their actions. And if there are no consequences to your actions, you're just going to keep pushing the envelope 
right? You're going to push, kick the tuna can down the street further and further and further. I mean, that's the that's what I see. And remember, I've said this on this podcast at least three or four times. Donald Trump remembers from a conversation that Putin has an ideology, which is how he remains in power, and he will always remain in power. And the adage in Putin's mind goes like this. It doesn't matter who you vote for. All that matters is who's counting the vote. And on that same theory, that's exactly what the Republicans are doing. Now, Rathensberger did the right thing. Trump did not. Where are the consequences? There are none. And the biggest problem that I see is what they're doing is they're setting a predicate for exactly what they want to do in the higher races. But they're doing these with the lower races where they're starting to fuck around with voters, um, with, you know, with ballots and so on, that this is no good. This one doesn't fit. This signature doesn't match this person's signature. Um, you know, this is not the right address. This was a mail-in ballot. We don't have to. And that way, they're going to start with the lower level and then eventually they'll get higher and higher, and then they'll try to do it on a much larger national scale. And that's the concern that I have, that this is not a short-term play. This is a long-term play. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's easier to pull things off on a local level when fewer people are paying attention than just outright um, throw out votes in a presidential election when there's a lot more scrutiny. I thought what happened to your old friend Rudy Giuliani this week was um, pretty important, though. Uh, just the idea that he would lose his law license, but also they said he's going to face sanctions for all the lies he told about the election, because that's some level of accountability. Is it enough? No. Um, but at least you're saying that lying about an election and attempting to overturn an election will have some sort of consequences, because honestly, it hasn't had consequences. Donald Trump was acquitted. Uh, for trying to incite an insurrection in the end. Uh, almost every single member of Congress that voted to overturn the election is right back in there. And only one Republican member, the craziest one in the House, got stripped of her committees. But the 146 other House Republicans that vote decided to try to overturn the election, they're just back at it like business as usual. And in fact, the people that led the Stop the Steal movement, they're the ones who are now running for secretary of state, or they're the ones who are now going to sit on these election boards. So far from being repudiated, they're the ones who are taking over. And that's the disturbing part to me. Like Brad Raffensperger is getting primaried right now by a congressman that wanted Donald Trump to be in installed as president. And so Raffensperger might not get might not even win his primary. I mean, he might be replaced by someone that believes that elections are only legitimate when Republicans win them to be the chief election official in the state of Georgia, which is just really completely nuts. And so the radicalization against democracy within the Republican Party is so disturbing right now. I think it's totally healthy to have political disagreements. I don't think people need to agree on everything. That's clearly not going to happen. But having a basic respect for democracy that no matter who wins an election, that is a legitimate winner. Things like that, that you sign off on the person that gets the most votes, things like that. That is the stuff that's coming under threat right now. Just like stuff that used to be so routine is now become so partisan and so politicized. And the very mechanics of elections are being taken over in really, really partisan and disturbing ways. And I think once you go down that path, it's hard to reverse it because 
people just say, well, we're going to use the levers of power we have to subvert democracy as long as it benefits us. And then that really doesn't become a democracy anymore. Well, that's what Trump taught them. You know, when we were at the Trump Organization and we would work on an issue and we were tasked by Donald to, let's say, not pay on a contract or to figure out some loophole in the contract that would give him a benefit. That's what they're doing. They're trying to take a look at the laws. They're splitting hairs. They're trying to, you know, wordsmith it in order to figure out how to get a benefit that they're looking for that completely overrides the the law that they want to, that they ultimately want to change. But I want to ask you this in, in that mindset. You've written a lot about how the preconditions for today's voter suppression bills came really eight years ago when John Roberts gutted the Voting Rights Act uh, in 2013. Now, again, this is another thing. This whole voters um, suppression, voters rights act, a, a lot of people understand it, but they don't understand the history of it. So what I'd like you to do, if you would, is to take my listeners back and explain to them what happened during this 2013 time period and how that paved the way for today's bills. Well, there was a really important provision of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that said that states with a long history of discrimination, like Georgia, Texas, Arizona, Mississippi, that they had to approve their voting changes with the federal government. Because Lyndon Johnson, when he signed the Voting Rights Act, Congress, when it passed the Voting Rights Act, they knew that once you struck down a literacy test or a poll tax in a place like Georgia, they were just going to try to pass another one. They were just going to try to get out from under federal law. And so they shifted the burden of proof from those who are facing discrimination to those who are doing the discriminating. And that's what made the Voting Rights Act so effective, is they had this incredible power to block laws before they even went into effect. It's like being able to stop a crime before it's ever been committed versus trying to solve the crime after the fact or get justice for it. And so this part of the Voting Rights Act blocked 2,000 discriminatory voting changes from 1965 to 2013. That when a state like Georgia wanted to pass a law to discriminate against minority voters or to prevent minority voters from getting elected, they, the federal government was able to block it. But John Roberts and the Supreme Court in 2013 in a decision called Shelby County versus Holder, they gutted that provision of the law. And they said that those states with a history of discrimination no longer had to approve their voting changes with the federal government. And what that has meant is that now, if Georgia wants to pass a new restrictive voting law, they can do it. And you can only challenge it after very slow litigation, which we talked about earlier. So back in the day when we had a strong Voting Rights Act, Georgia wants to pass a bill to make it harder to vote. They'll have to submit that bill to the federal government or the federal courts. And the courts are going to say, well, there's all these provisions that seem to have a disproportionate impact on black or Latino voters. So we're not going to approve it. Well, now it's able to go into effect. You can only challenge it after the fact. And what we found in a new analysis for Mother Jones is that 26 states have enacted new restrictions on voting since that decision. So John Roberts said in 2013, things have changed dramatically uh, since 1965. But what he ignored is that not only was voter suppression not over, but as Ruth Bader Ginsburg said in her dissent, 
throwing out that part of the Voting Rights Act was like getting rid of your umbrella when you're not getting wet, meaning that it was going to rain again. Uh, and that's exactly what, what happened. Now, quite frankly, it's storming when it comes to uh, voter suppression efforts. But a lot of the things we're seeing in states with a history of discrimination, Georgia, Texas, et cetera, those would have been blocked had it not been for that 2013 decision by John Roberts. Oh, well, how cool would that be if you know, it would be almost like that movie Minority Report with Tom Cruise. Somebody tries to step in and suppress somebody's uh, voting rights. And all of a sudden they would pop out of nowhere, like through this uh, sort of, you know, vortex. Right. And then they would come take you away. Uh, I mean, that would be that would be something. But you're right. I mean, with so many states now enacting all of these various legislative uh, rights and actions in order to suppress another person's um, ability to vote for who they want and to have a free and fair election. I mean, that's sort of the precursor to the end of your democracy, because as I said before, you know, and it's not me, it's just me stating verbatim, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin's position. It only matters who's counting the votes. Wouldn't that be great if you were the winner and you won the election before you even actually entered it? I mean, that's what the <laughs> GOP is looking to do. It doesn't make a difference that, you know, there are 60 percent of the populace wants the other person. I don't care if 90 percent or even 100 percent want. If I'm controlling who's counting the votes, well— I'm automatically the winner, aren't I? Yeah. I mean, that's the system they want. I, I think a lot of Republicans don't want to live in a democracy. They want to live in an authoritarian society where elections are only legitimate if they win the election. And we know that because that's what they're saying in polling, that we are seeing when you say that a state legislature should be able to override the will of the voters. What you're basically saying is democracy is meaningless. Because what's the point of having an election if you can just nullify it if you don't like the winner of the election? And that's where I think it's just a, a dangerous escalation of tactics uh, to go from fighting over laws to then saying no matter what the outcome is, we're going to attempt to nullify it. And I think that 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 was the most chilling aspect of what Trump was trying to do in 2020. Now, he didn't succeed in doing that, but you can argue that Really, the entire goal of the Republican Party since the election has been trying to figure out how to succeed where they failed in 2020. But Ari, none of these representatives would feel this way at all if it wasn't them currently in power, right? So the fact of the matter that they have the power, yeah, they're okay with their autocratic democracy, Right. They're playing it under the game that this is a, this is an absolute democracy. Uh, and so on, when obviously what they're creating is an autocracy. But what's amazing is if they weren't in power, I guarantee you 100 percent, they wouldn't fucking feel the same way. They would be turning around and saying this is not right. They would be saying what you and I are saying right now, what the Democrats are saying right now, you know. While you have the power, it's the same shit with Donald Trump. When he had the power, he felt invincible. He wanted to do all sorts of shit that were unconstitutional, that violated, you know, everything that our democracy stands for. Now that he's out of power, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, whoa, 
take two steps back. You can't do that, Joe Biden. That's not right. You're taking your authority to a to a level that you shouldn't be permitted to do. And that's that's unfortunately what happens. So these people think that they're going to stay in power forever. If I can if I can get onto the Putin bandwagon of being the electorate, well, maybe the next thing that happens, people start buying the spots. So you may yeah. be you may be a congressman, a senator, a governor, whatever, for thirty years. First of all, I don't like that either. I don't think anybody should have these long term, you know, senator positions. You find out guys who are sitting there, uh, you know, forty five years, fifty years. It was supposed. It wasn't supposed to be a profession. It was supposed to be a duty. But all of a sudden now, you know what? I'm rich. I can pay for my seat. You're out. I'm in. Rest assured, they would be bitching and complaining. Yeah, I mean, of course, it was. It was all about self-interest. None of this is being driven by principle. I mean, it, it's clear that none of it is being driven by principle. And, you know, it was one of those things where, I mean, to me, one of the best examples of it was the way they handled mail ballots in, two th- in 2020, which is <laughs> they would have flyers uh, that Republicans printed out encouraging people to vote by mail. And basically they would say, well, Democrats voting by mail is wrong, but Republicans should still be able to use mail voting. And Trump would say, well, you know what? I like the way Florida is doing mail voting, but I don't like the way it's going in Nevada. Well, what's the difference? What was the difference at the same time? It was the same kind of ballot. It was because he knew he was going to win Florida or thought he was going to win Florida. And he knew he was probably going to lose Nevada. And so there was never any principle at, at the end of the day here. A lot of the voting methods, Michael, that they're going after were Republican voting methods. And that, that's, to me, the, the argument that I've made to my Republican friends. Why would you get rid of something that you guys use so successfully just because Trump didn't like it? Like in Florida, Republicans had huge advantages with mail-in voting. Ari, because, the, Ari, because they're stupid. <laughs> There's no other answer because they're stupid. I'm sorry, continue. No, I'm just saying, in, in Florida, you know, how did Ron DeSantis get elected? How did they get a Republican legislature? How did they get Republican officials at every level of the ballot? They're the ones who used mail voting. And then there was one election in 2000 where more Democrats voted by mail. The only reason that happened was because Trump told people not to vote by mail. And now they're trying to cut back on mail voting. And it's like you're undercutting the very system that benefited you historically. And so I, I think it's just a, it's a, I think voter suppression, ultimately, to me, it's a very short term strategy. It's a very reactive strategy. And if you're trying to prevent people from voting, that means you're ultimately not reaching out and trying to get more voters. And I think in the end, that's a difficult way to keep sustaining elections. Now, if you create an authoritarian state, if you create a Vladimir Putin state, right, then you're fine. You don't have to worry about it. You've done the suppression that you need to do. But if you're still a democracy and your whole goal is trying to prevent more people from voting, that just means you're tr- you're not actually making an argument to try to get more people to vote for you. And I think that's a dangerous position to be in. And to me, that's a position of last resort. And they've made it the position of first resort. But really, uh, it's in a way, it's almost an acknowledgement of the weakness that the party is in right now, that it has to resort to all of these anti-democratic actions. The thing I worry about, though, is that they're going to be successful. That will then strengthen their grip on power, and it will become this feedback loop where one anti-democratic action just emboldens them to go further and be even more anti-democratic. And which they will. 
But Ari, you recently tweeted that, and I quote, Mansion and Cinema are exactly like the spineless Republicans in 1890 who went along with the Senate filibuster of key voting rights bills. Its failure gave green light to the disenfranchisement of black voters across the South and led to Jim Crow. Now, I'm curious why you think they're holding so tight to their position beyond the fact that they are both Democratic senators in largely red states. Is it more the fact that in refusing to consider ending the filibuster in this current 50-50 Senate, that they have made themselves now a focus of power? Or are they getting anything out of this in terms of maybe negotiating earmarks or special provisions in legislation for their votes? Or, and finally, do you foresee a time when they do change their minds and ultimately come back to reality? It's probably all of those things, honestly. Uh, I was making that point because uh, when the state of Mississippi in 1890 passed the Constitution to just openly disenfranchise black voters, the House passed a bill that would have allowed federal supervisors to monitor elections, which would have stopped the disenfranchisement of black voters in places like Mississippi. And it passed the House and then it was filibustered by Democrats. Remember, Democrats back then was the were the party of white supremacy and Republicans were the party of civil rights and the roles have reversed today. But back in 1890, the Democrats were filibustering this voting rights bill. And you had a few senators from really small Western mining states that didn't really support voting rights and that all they cared about was silver, basically, was their chief priority. And so they just wanted to get the Congress away from dealing with voting rights and civil rights. And to me, that was a lot like Mansion and Cinema, because basically what Mansion and Cinema are doing is by supporting the filibuster, they're giving Mitch McConnell veto power over American democracy. They're saying that Republicans can block any kind of action in the name of bipartisanship. And what I've been saying is there's this asymmetric warfare here where Republicans are unilaterally making it harder to vote at the state level through simple majority votes. But Democrats are saying we need 60 votes at the federal level to protect voting rights. And that doesn't make any sense because Republicans are freezing Democrats out of bipartisanship at the state level. But Democrats are still entertaining this idea of bipartisanship at the federal level. And I think a lot of it is just wanting to appear bipartisan. I think at the end of the day, I don't believe that Manchin and Cinema have real problems with these bills. I think that they just want to seem like they're bipartisan because they think that helps their brand. And, you know, for Manchin... It's a little hard to argue with that. He, he is someone who wins in a state that is very, very conservative. Cinema, it's a harder argument. She was elected in 2018. They elected a Democratic senator. Joe Biden won the state. And so, I mean, it's weird that she would be so opposed to the filibuster, but the, the senators from Georgia, who are in just, a, just as precarious a position as she is, they're so gung-ho about being able to pass voting rights legislation. And I think these guys like the center of attention, they like the idea of appearing bipartisan. Uh, they probably are getting all sorts of favors in exchange for it. I'm sure Manchin, I, you know, his wife was appointed to something in the Biden administration. God knows what else he's got earmarked going to West Virginia. But I think at the end of the day, they have to view themselves in terms of history, which is, do you want to be the people that allowed Republicans to undermine democracy? Do you want to be the people that gave Mitch McConnell a veto power over protecting voting rights? Do you want to be the guys that are remembered 
uh, for the haplessness of the Democratic Party when it was faced with this incredible explosion of anti-democratic energy. And it said, let's compromise with the very people that are attacking our democracy. To me, that's the craziest part. It's like asking an arsonist to help keep out a fire. Why would 10 Republicans support something that goes against exactly what their party is doing at the state level? And so I think they're making some progress with them in terms of, listen, they got all of them to support this bill. They've got them uh, to be open to passing future legislation. But I don't think they've got them there on getting rid of the filibuster or watering down the filibuster. It's something that they say they might be open to, but there's no tangible evidence that they'll actually do it. Well, since we're talking about optics, In a CNN interview earlier in the week after the GOP filibustered the voter rights bill in the Senate, David Axelrod said that the legislative efforts by the Democrats are more about optics than anything believing that they can pass a bill. Now, they know that they don't have the numbers with the filibuster, but it still makes for great politics in that it becomes a mobilization effort that will ultimately bring out voters in 2022 and beyond. Now, I'm curious in your opinion, if you believe that ultimately the GOP's efforts will backfire on them in that it will bring out more voters to the polls in anger than they could possibly suppress uh, with these measures. That's it's possible. That certainly could happen in a state like Georgia. If you have a charismatic leader like Stacey Abrams, who's able uh, to mobilize people, that's certainly possible. I disagree a little bit with David here. This is all about messaging. I think what Democrats are trying to do is they're trying to build a systematic case against the filibuster with the blocking of the January 6th commission, with the blocking of uh, equal pay for women, with the blocking of the For the People Act. Chuck Schumer's trying to make a case that the Republican Party is so obstructionist that we have to get rid of the filibuster to get things done. Now, I don't know if that's going to succeed, but I do think there's a strategy here in terms of what they're doing. I don't think this is all about politics, but certainly, I mean, if they're not going to be able to pass anything, then the next best thing would be to turn out uh, and try to mobilize people to combat these efforts. I do think, though, that failing to pass legislation is going to make it too hard to mobilize your voters. Because when the senators from Georgia ran, they didn't say, we're going to pass a new Voting Rights Act and had an asterisk under it that said, unless Mitch McConnell lets us do it. So I think it's a, it's a tough thing to message on that put us back in power so the Republicans can just block whatever we do. I think that's a hard message, as opposed to look how we delivered for you, reelect us because of that. I think that's a much more compelling message. Right. Except, <laughs> Ari, for real, fucking Mitch McConnell, the Republican overlord, right? The, 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 the Voldemort of the, of the GOP turned around and said from day number one that I will never allow anything that Joe Biden wants passed to pass through the Senate, including forgetting about all the others. They can make their arguments, though. I don't agree with any of them, but... The COVID relief package, they were obstructionists in that as well. People didn't have food to feed themselves or their children, electricity in their homes. And Mitch McConnell and the GOP were going to obstruct Joe Biden's determination to pass this package. Are you kidding me? Seriously? I just, yeah, I just, I honestly can't believe that after all that they've gone through with Mitch McConnell, he still has power. I mean, I, I feel like I'm going to be 80 years old and somehow Mitch McConnell is still going to be filibustering things in the Senate. Like, how did Democrats not learn their lesson with this guy when he just flat out stole Supreme Court seats? I mean, 
there was to me that was worse than anything Trump ever did, what Mitch McConnell did to Merrick Garland. And he just completely invented a rule saying you can't confirm a Supreme Court justice eight months before the election, completely arbitrary bullshit. And then he confirms Amy Coney Barrett eight days before the election when 65 million people have already voted. You're going to let this guy keep having veto power over American democracy? I just It's just astonishing to me that Democrats would work so hard to get a majority. Then they would say, we're not going to do anything as long as Mitch McConnell doesn't agree with it. Make him irrelevant. Make him irrelevant. They are just giving him more and more power. Why would you give this guy a veto? He talked, He, I mean, the, the level of cynicism of Mitch McConnell, remember how he wouldn't hold an impeachment trial for Donald Trump? And then he said, we don't have enough time to impeach him. Then they said, you can't impeach an ex-president. <laughs> Well, he, he's the one who decided that you couldn't hold the impeachment trial. So, I mean, it's just it's one thing after another for him. Um, you know, we've been talking about it for about an hour, so I don't I don't want to get any more worked up about Mitch McConnell. But I mean, it's truly I, I just don't see how any Democratic senator could sit there and think, yeah, this is the guy that I want uh, controlling the Senate, even though we have the majority. Well, if you are a member of the GOP or if you're a Trump supporter or a Republican, Mitch McConnell is exactly who you want because you're going to stymie any single benefit that the president, that Biden can actually accomplish, which to me, and I've said this again on you know podcasts, on television, it is so ass backwards in terms of thought process that you want your country to crash because you don't want a Democrat in the, you know, in the president's office, in the Oval Office. This to me is, it's illogical, it's stupid, it's fucked up, you know, to say the least. The notion that you want your country to fail so that your party takes power to me is crazy. But you know, Ari, as we're winding down the hour, I have one last question for you. Um, In a tweet you wrote, and I quote, Senate Democrats represent 43 million more people than Senate GOP, but 41 Republicans representing just 21% of the country can block for the People's Act, supported by 68% of Americans. Now, which Rashida Tlaib replied to you by saying, why are we negotiating with these people? While I agree with the sentiment I don't understand what choice we have under the current system unless we somehow do away with the filibuster, which is proving impossible because of people like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. And if you would, final, right, explain to my listeners what else can be done to break this authoritarian fever. Well, that that tweet that you wrote, I think, just sums it all up, which is that. Democrats win many more votes than Republicans, but Republicans use a small minority of the country to block policies that are supported by a huge percentage of Americans. And I think we need to redefine what bipartisanship means. I think if 70 percent of Americans support something, it's clearly bipartisan. I mean, a majority of Republican voters supported the For the People Act. So even if no Republicans supported it in the Senate, it was bipartisan because so much of the public supported it. And if you ask the public, do you want voting to be convenient? They overwhelmingly say they do want voting to be convenient. So I don't think it's a partisan issue. So I I think that you really hit the nail on on the head, which is, do you want to get anything done? Or do you want Mitch McConnell to be able to block every sort of thing possible? And not just with 50 votes, but with 41 votes. I mean, people say the filibuster leads to 
bipartisanship. No, it doesn't. Remember the January 6th commission vote? You had 35 Republicans block a bill that was supported by 54 senators, both Republicans and Democrats. So the filibuster was an obstruction to bipartisanship. It prevented bipartisanship from succeeding. So we need to redefine what bipartisanship is. We need to redefine what people think the filibuster accomplishes. It doesn't lead to compromise. It 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 stops compromise. And you know, there's this this way that James Madison used to say that the Senate was a cooler. It was supposed to cool down legislation. But he didn't want the Senate to be an icebox where you throw dead bodies so that everything goes to die. And that's really what it's become. And I, I think you know that Democrats have a very, very short period of time to get stuff done. If they don't deliver, they're going to be out of power in at least one chamber in 2022, meaning they can't do anything to protect American democracy. And meaning the same people that tried to overthrow our election, the same people that excited an insurrection, they're going to be back in power but worse, even more radical. And so that's the that's the choice we face. Uh, and again, it's really up to, you know, do Manchin and Cinema want to be the people that put the insurrectionists back in charge? To me, that's really what this is all about at the end of the day. Yeah, and look, I, I can't disagree. There's nothing that you just said there that I disagree with. I am so concerned for the future of this country as it relates to this filibuster because the notion that you'll have 100% of any chamber is obviously never going to happen. And so unless you have that, if you can stop uh, a bill from passing with 35%, you could stop it with 30% or 25%. And the notion that you're going to be able to get 100%, even then you would end up having groups within groups acting in these sort of positions that are contrary to what you're trying to accomplish. And so... Yeah, I agree. The definitions have to all be changed. People have to understand. And you, I still and I believe this, that Joe Biden should be doing a little more. I hate to say it of what Trump did. Do things through executive order. Say, you know what? I'm not going to deal with your bullshit, Senate. I'm just going to do it by executive order. Sit down, sign it and get it moving. The only difference is that if you're going to do that, you have to have the right people in place and you have to have a bill that's going to, or you're going to have to have a program that's going to further what it is that you can do, like the way Trump fucked up the First Step Act or, you know, prison reform. Yeah, uh, uh, prison reform. Okay, look at my signature. Look at my signature, right? Holding it up and so as if he just changed something. You had to actually put it into effect. And that, that would be the difference. So I would recommend to Joe Biden, Stop putzing around with these people. You, you shouldn't have to be kissing anybody's ass. You're the president. As far as I'm concerned, until they figure out how to deal with this filibuster rule and how to start working together, because the Republicans do not want to work with the Democrats at all. And so therefore, the Democrats can't work with the Republicans. So anything that Joe Biden, no matter how good it is, including this COVID relief package, putting money in the hands of Americans who were starving, who needed it. That still wasn't good enough for the Republicans. So listen, Ari, thank you so much for your time, for your insight. Uh, truly appreciate it. Uh, look forward to continuing to read your tweets and your articles. And um, I just want to, again, just thank you for joining us here on Mea Culpa today. Thank you, Michael. It's been fun. It's been colorful. I appreciate it. You be well. And now for today's mea culpa. 
Watching Rudy Giuliani face accountability feels like there's been some restoration of balance and karma within the universe. Using Trump as a shield, Rudy ran amok at a rate far worse than any of us can imagine. Thankfully, there's a slew of evidence soon to be made public which will show an out-of-control Giuliani running a criminal operation from inside the White House aimed at propping up Trump's authoritarian regime. The man has become a sad parody of himself, ruined by ambition, greed, and more than anything, proximity to Donald J. Trump. It's like the devil swooped down and remade Rudy into some kind of fucking goblin and forced him to ingest Trump's evil blood. Not that Rudy was some kind of sweetheart before they met, but these last eight or so years have seen him fall from grace precipitously to the point that the man is a gross parody of himself, a living, breathing fucking example of everything awful about Trump world. Somehow, despite the constant and repeated lies, Trump gives himself just enough wiggle room to avoid being prosecuted for his bullshit. Now that's about to end. But at one point, the man was a world champion liar, so good that he raised it to an art form. I mean, the man lied his way to becoming the president of the United States, and that should tell you something. But Rudy was like Trump's oafish brother, trying very hard to ingratiate himself, but always failing, always doing it just a little bit wrong. Here's the man who was found with his hands down his pants by Barat in his underwear after groping the behind of a supposed underage reporter. In all fairness, he probably was just tucking in his shirt, but it doesn't matter. He shouldn't have been in that room in the first place. So he just comes across as wrong, as suspect, a perp in police lingo. Trump's shadow was big enough to hide scores of these individuals for several years. Rudy, Mike Flynn, Steve Bannon, Paul Manafort, every one of them a scumbag criminal who formed a web of deceit around the former president. Rudy is the last man standing and hopefully the one to take the biggest fall. Do not cry for this man though, he wishes you nothing but harm. So let's return the favor and lock his ass up behind bars for what he unleashed upon this nation. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea Culpa, nothing but the truth. <laughs>